So, yes, here we are. We are in week seven. All right, we're getting there, folks. Obviously, uh, shockingly enough, there are, this is a 10-week series because of the Ten Commandments. <laughs> but we're in the seventh week here. Um, and as uh, Amy beautifully read, we are today focusing on the commandment, you shall not commit adultery. I've met someone else. Those four words, or any permutation you can think of, have probably done more to, to break hearts, to destroy marriages and tear families apart than any other set of words. I've met someone else. I'm seeing someone else. Nobody, or at least not many people, in a relationship, and especially a marriage, ever want to hear those words. Many years ago, this was before I ever knew Sarah, my wife, I heard those words or words similar to that from my then fiancé. And it was basically to tell me that she had been seeing somebody else but felt that I needed to know because she wanted me to know that if we were going to continue with the engagement and get married, that she was, she was finished uh, with, with this person and that. But she felt I deserved to know. And we tried to, to make it work for some time after that. But in the end, it didn't, ended up not working out. Which actually ended up being a good thing because I wouldn't have met Sarah. And probably would not be standing here right now as a pastor preaching. So God's, God's always at work, even at the time, it was one of the most devastating things that I could have possibly gone through. But those words, I've met somebody else, can be devastating words to hear. And uh, much like murder, which we talked about last week, the commandment, thou shalt not murder, most of us instinctually know that there's something wrong about adultery. Yeah? We, we just, deep down, we know, you know, that, that is not good. And again, though, we, we have to ask some questions. We have to ask the question, well, why? Why is adultery wrong? Why is faithfulness to our husband or wife to be so highly valued? Why be monogamous at all? Why, why, why spend your life with just one person? When there seems to be so many options out there, right? So these are all questions we're going to look at a little bit. But, you know, first, let's just give a, a basic working definition of adultery. In its basic sense, adultery is marital infidelity. And so because adultery is, is connected to marriage, we can't really understand and talk about adultery until we at least talk a little bit about marriage and what marriage means from, from a biblical perspective. Because think about it, if it's, if it's through the Bible, if it's through these commandments that we learn that adultery is wrong, then it's also through Scripture that we're going to learn and understand God's plan for marriage. So, we actually we find the, the foundations for, for marriage right at the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. And this is where um, it all begins, uh, so to speak. 
So listen to what it says in Genesis chapter 2. This is beginning at, at verse 20. And this is actually uh, right after Adam has, has been naming all the creatures of the earth. He's been giving names and labels to all the creatures. And it says, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So, regardless of how you understand the creation account, because within the Christian community, within the, the world of believers, there, there are a number of ways to interpret the, the creation account. But, you know, regardless of whether you understand that as literally or other ways, I believe there are three important points that God is trying to tell us through that passage that we just uh, read there. That he's trying to tell us about the relationship between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. So number one, woman was created to be a co-partner, to be a companion to man. So in that sense, female complements male. And male compliments female. And, you know, many folks have they've misinterpreted or misunderstood this verse to suggest that a woman is somehow subservient or lesser than a man. But that's actually not what this is saying at all. Okay, we, we hear this word suitable helper. This is how the, the Bible translates it here, that, that a woman is a suitable helper. And, and our sort of 21st century lens, what we tend to do is we hear the word helper and we think that that, you know, we think of a modern day helper as somebody who's kind of lesser than the person they're helping, right? Well, that's not actually what's going on here, though, in Scripture. Um, that word helper, it's a Hebrew word, Isa, and it's used 21 times in the Old Testament. And interestingly, the vast majority of times that word is used it's actually to refer to God as helper. All right? So think about that for a moment. Right? This word is used to say God is our helper. So to apply that to a woman is, is not derogatory at all. That's actually putting you in the same context as God being a helper. What's well, the same kind of helper? The other word for suitable is another Hebrew word, which literally means according to the opposite of him. Think about that, according to the opposite of him. So, so Eve was, a woman was not created above or below Adam, but was designed to be complementary, to be a co-partner. And that was God's plan from the beginning, that men and women should complement and complete each other and that this was and is especially the case within the context of marriage. You know, often we hear the, the, uh, the expression, you know, that uh, a dog is man's best friend, right? Um, well, technically speaking, no, actually a woman is man's best friend and a man is woman's best friend. And I, I know some of you may disagree with me in the room about the whole dog thing because I know 
how some of you love your dogs. <laughs> but that's the first point, okay? Woman was created to be a co-partner to man. Number two, uh, we are called to make our spouse our primary relationship once we are married. Over and above your parents. Okay, this is a mistake that a lot of people do going into marriage. Is they, They're still so attached to their parents that their parents' relationship is more primary than their relationship to their husband or wife. That, that's, that's a mistake. And actually, Sarah and I, we went through this. We had some teething pains with regards to this. When we were early on married, there were was, there was certain uh, uh, areas where I put my, my father before Sarah's needs. And it created a lot of tension in the marriage to begin with. There was also Sarah was in the habit of seeking advice from her parents about issues. Issues connected with me. So if there was something she didn't like that I was doing, she would vent to her parents about it. Again, that was not the right thing to do. The best thing was to talk to me about it. So we're called to make our spouse our primary relationship once we're married, not our parents. And then the third point is, you become one flesh. You become one flesh. So right there in Genesis 2, we we have really God's blueprint and design for marriage right from the beginning of creation. And if we have any doubts about that, about whether that's still the case, or perhaps we're thinking, well, you know what, that was, come on guys, that's Old Testament stuff. We're, 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 We're Christians, we live in the New Covenant, the New Testament. Well, it's affirmed multiple times in the New Testament. Uh, several times by Paul, and then by Jesus himself. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, when he's asked about marriage. And Jesus says, haven't you, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So that's Jesus basically quoting almost word for word from Genesis 2. And he's affirming the role and purpose of male and female in the context of marriage. Now, a phrase that we first read in Genesis 2, and then that Jesus and Paul also reiterate, is this phrase, the two become one flesh. What does that mean, the two become one flesh? Because I don't see many married couples walking around who are actually physically joined at the hip. It's a couple I've met. But <laughs> so what does that mean, one flesh? Well, one of the obvious things this points to is the sexual components of marriage and the fact that we have been created as sexual beings. Now, there's, there's often this misconception in many churches and, and certain branches of, of Christianity today, that, that sex is bad. That a su- certain prudish attitude must be adopted when it comes to sex. That it's somehow dirty and ungodly. That it's a, a necessary evil for procreating. You know, during the medieval times, the church got so, uh, what's the word, uh, prudish about this that they actually ended up with 183 days of the year being days that you were required to abstain from sexual relations with your spouse. That the church had mandated this. And I, I kind of wonder if it was really, you know, the celibate priest just getting back at the rest of us. Like, ha, if we can't, you guys aren't going to be able to do it as well. But 
actually, when we look at Scripture, nothing could be further from the truth. We actually, we need to remind ourselves that, that God, God is the creator and designer of sex. God invented sex. That may be news to some of you. God's the one who made our bodies and made our intimate parts. He's the one who gave us hormones. And guess what? God, God's not embarrassed by them. And nor should we be. I mean, heck, folks, there's a whole book in the Bible about the beauty and blessings of sex, the Song of Solomon. So by God's design, we are, we are sexual. That's not the problem, okay? The problem lies in how we as human beings have lost our way in understanding the right and godly purpose and place of, of sex. Sex and marriage are actually two of God's greatest gifts, So when you think about that, that's two of God's greatest gifts. It makes sense that Satan would want to go after these good gifts and try to twist them and pervert them and ruin them. Because that's what Satan wants to do with any good gift God has given us. If he can ruin it, he'll try to ruin it. Amen. So let's talk about what what are some of the ways this can happen. Well, Scripture makes clear. That the only right and proper place for sex is within the context of marriage. And that anything outside of that is sinful in God's eyes. Now, I know that in today's culture, that is, to most people, laughable. It sounds like a really backwards idea, doesn't it? I mean, if we, you know, on the surface, it seems repressive. It seems like it's an attack on our personal freedom. Well, part of the reason for that is because we are constantly bombarded from all directions with the notions that sex is really about self-expression and personal freedom. That it's sex that gives you meaning and purpose in life. That it cures loneliness. That it builds self-esteem. That it'll fight depression, and will make your life complete. Folks, ask, ask anyone who's had a one-night stand if these things are really true. And they'll tell you that it's actually all lies. You know, our culture is progressively going more and more that way to so-called sexual freedom. And one of the ways I found this highlighted is, you ever watched a show from the 80s or the 90s or even the early 2000s and back then they were it was kind of an edgy show it was kind of pushing the boundaries and now you see a rerun of it and it almost feels tame compared to some of the stuff that is coming out today i find myself when when i feel like that almost being shocked i'm like wow how desensitized have we become in one sense We've got to ask the question, is it possible that the supposed sexual freedom of today's society is really just a form of enslavement? J. John said it like this. He said, is it possible that what we took to be the gateway to freedom was in fact the door to slavery? I mean, the truth is, folks, right, we, we all want to be loved, don't we? 
We all want to be loved. We all want to find love and we want to love someone else, that special someone. But the lie we've been fed is that you can find it in sex alone. That's a lie. You know, today there, we've talked about this in the past, but more and more people are suffering from depression and emptiness and loneliness. And one of the reasons I think for that is that um, we, we sort of, our society is changing a little bit when we have, we have dating apps like Tinder, where it's not even really about dating somebody anymore. It's just about finding somebody to hook up with for a night. Okay, and you can, you know, check your preferences, you know, height, weight, eye color, hair color, all this kind of stuff. And people are used as pieces of meat. And, and, and people are doing it because they think they're going to find uh, satisfaction and meaning in life by doing this. And, of course, the opposite is true. They go through this and they feel more empty and lonely than ever before. Like I said, sex is not a bad thing. It's something to be celebrated and enjoyed, but within the context of marriage. Because within the context of marriage, it's the most intimate union a man and a woman can have. And you know why? Because it's a reflection of the spiritual union that also exists through that. And the reason for that is that marriage is a covenant under God. And when that covenant is broken through sexual infidelity, there's a physical and spiritual union that is essentially desecrated. That's why adultery is so wrong in God's eyes. It's much more than sleeping with someone who is not your husband or wife. Now, perhaps like last week, you might be sitting here thinking, well, you know what, I... Uh, I've never been unfaithful to my wife or my husband. Um, so I, I, I think I'm all set on this commandment. You know, just like last week, I, I don't think I've murdered anybody. I think I'm all set. Well, guess what? Once again, here comes Jesus. And Jesus, one of the things Jesus loves to do is he loves to rock the boat, doesn't he? Okay, he was, he was not a conformist, was he, Jesus? He definitely rocks a few boats in his time. In fact, it was that ultimately that led to his death. But Jesus transforms this commandment and challenges us with the fact that it's not just about our outward actions, but it's also about the inner motives of our heart. What's going on inside here, folks? What's going on in here? What's going on in here? That's just as important as what you actually physically do. So listen to what he says in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you've heard it that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Once again, Jesus is taking it to this almost impossible level. So just when you might have started feeling a little smug and self-satisfied... A little thank you, Father, that I am not like these other sinners. Jesus has basically just leveled the playing field. So just like last week, I said that really, actually, we could all be classed as murderers. Because Jesus was saying that if you have anger in your heart, then you're a murderer at heart. So in a sense, we could all be classed as being adulterers. 
Why? Because who has not had lustful thoughts about someone other than their spouse? Who has not let a look linger longer than it should and allow a fantasy to play out in their head? I'm guilty. And I know I'm not special. I've used this example before, but you know, I've always wondered what the world would be like if people's thoughts appeared like speech bubbles like they do in comic books. <laughs> can, you, <laughs> can you imagine some of the things you'd read? I think we'd be horrified. We'd suddenly realize, you know what? None of us are really good people. <laughs> you know, But we like to say, I'm a good person. Really? What about that thought you just thought? Well, uh, nobody else knows about that. Now, Jesus knows about it. God knows about it. And you know what? If you're thinking, well, hey, I'm not married, so I'm off the hook. Can't commit adultery if you're not married. No. What Jesus is really getting at here is, is sexual purity. And purity in our thought life as well as in our actions. You see, a thought life is just as important as our action life. And our thoughts lead to our actions, don't they? We act because we think about acting. And when you think about it, most, most adultery, right, doesn't, don't start with sex. It starts with thinking about it, with fantasizing about it, about sending little texts, little emails, meeting daily for lunch, begins like that, doesn't it? And slowly but surely, it develops. You know, one of the most famous cases of adultery in the Bible was, was with King David, right? And Bathsheba. You guys remember that story? We can find it in Second Samuel chapter 11. And here's what it says. It says, one, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. So let's just think about that story for a moment. What happens, right? David sees Bathsheba bathing. David's walking around his rooftop. And he's... Hmm. Who's that? Do you know know who that is? Go find out. Okay. Come back real quick. Come on, come on. Bathsheba. That's a nice name. I like that. Bathsheba. Yeah. Cool. She's married. Uh, Okay. Send her to my room, would you? You see what happened there? He, David catches sight of Bathsheba. And instead of a quick glance, they're like, oh, that's a naked woman taking a bath. I should probably walk away from that. He lingers. He starts to, to look at Bathsheba, to imagine things. And then he says, find out who she is. And then once he finds out she's married, that really should have been the end of it, shouldn't it? He should have turned around and said, oh, she's married. Okay, forget about it. But he doesn't. And what happens? He ends up sleeping with her. She gets pregnant. 
David brings Uriah, her husband, back, gets him drunk, tries to get him to, to sleep with her so then it will seem that the child is his. Uriah won't do that because he's actually a man of honor. And so David has him sent to the front line where he knows he will be killed, and he is. Bathsheba has the child. The child dies, I think, a week later. All of that happened because of David's adulterous heart. An innocent man dies. A newborn dies. And Bathsheba is caught in the middle of it all, used. You see, folks, there's there's a difference between a passing glance or a thought that acknowledges that someone is attractive or beautiful. We all have those thoughts. It's normal. Okay? But the danger lies in when we dwell there and we start to feed lust. You know, lust is often confused with love in our society. It, they've, they've almost become identical words, right? When we say, often when somebody says, I'm in love with somebody, they're really, they're in lust with somebody. It's not, I love you, it's, I lust you, right? And as we all know, lust, lust wears off. If you've, if you've been married for any amount of time, you know that your marriage needs to be built on more than just that initial lust you might have had for each other when you first met. But it often gets confused with love. If you, if you want to find out what love really is, read 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul's exposition on love. Where he talks about love is kind, love is patient, all these things. That, that is true love. But lust, lust is selfish. It's self-centered. It's self-obsessed. You know who lust cares about? Numero uno, number one. That's all lust cares about. It treats people as objects that are to be used for our own pleasure and satisfaction and then disregarded once they're no more used to us. And actually, folks, this is one of the reasons why pornography is so destructive. Why it's so destructive to society at large. Because what does it do? It turns people into objects that are merely to be used for our own personal pleasure and ego. And then to be casually thrown away after their usefulness has expired. It creates a completely unrealistic expectation of what sex is really like. And essentially it's full of lies and false promises. Add to the fact that if you're somebody who regularly looks at porn whether you realize it or not, you are directly and indirectly fueling sex trafficking and sexual abuse. The porn industry is ultimately evil because it's about money and power at the expense of people. It's estimated that the industry net worth is around $97 billion a year. By the way, that's enough to feed 4.8 billion people a day. You want to cure world hunger? There's your answer. One in five smartphone searches are for pornography. And parents, if your child has a smartphone, they have almost certainly been exposed to pornography. 64% of young people between the ages of 13 to 24 actively seek out porn weekly or more often. And if they're not looking at it, 
I guarantee you their friends will be showing it to them. You know, this is where it gets a little bit uncomfortable. And I, I, know, I know this is a tough subject, folks, but it is such a relevant, important subject to us. And one thing I will never do as your pastor is skirt around controversial issues. It may not be always what you want to hear, but my job, folks, is to preach the word of God, is to preach the gospel as best as I know how. And that's not always going to be popular. Jesus told us that the cross is a scandal, that it is an offense to some people. But we need to go here, folks, because you know what I'm interested in? I want you to grow. I want your relationship with the Lord to get richer. And sometimes we've got to get a little bit uncomfortable. So statistically speaking, there are any number of people sitting in these pews this morning that struggle with pornography. And this isn't to point the finger at anybody. Please hear my heart on this, folks. This is to, this is to join with you as a co-sinner. And to, and to let you know, like many other people in my past, I have had my own struggles with this. By the grace of God, I am free. But when I was a, a teenager and in my 20s, this was something I struggled with. And it was only through the guidance of a good pastor who called it out in my life and challenged me that I got over it. And I I say that, folks, to let you know that there is hope and change is possible for you if this is something you struggle with today. The first thing you have to do is get it out in the open. This actually goes for any um, repetitive sin in your life which can be many things. But the first thing you need to do to take suck all its power away is get it out in the open. Find a brother or sister in Christ that you trust and share with them what's been going on. Confess it. That is the first step to freedom. You can come to me if you feel comfortable or somebody else, but don't remain there hidden, feeling the shame and condemnation about it because that's exactly where the devil wants to keep you. But freedom comes through repentance. I also realize that this might be a tough message for some of you that have had your own experience with adultery. Perhaps you were the adulterer. Or perhaps you were the one who was betrayed. Perhaps you're contemplating it right now. I also know that uh, a a good number of you have, have gone through the pain of divorce. And again, this is not a message of condemnation. This is actually a message of hope. Why is it a message of hope? Because I want to remind you of the words of Roman, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me say that again because there's a dead look on people's faces. And I want you to understand the truth of that sentence. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You hear what that says? If you have placed your life in Jesus' hands, if you have confessed it before the Lord, whatever it is, and you've stopped and you've repented, then you no longer have to walk in shame and self-condemnation. It is done. It is finished. You are forgiven. You are a new creation. That's why he went to the cross for you, folks. 
so that all the garbage in your life, you could throw at the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I'm done with it. I'm a new creation in you. I give it to you. We have to realize this truth, folks. If we realized it, we'd be jumping from the rafters. Because despite the sin and all the dirt in our life, if you're in Jesus, you are free. You are no longer condemned. Still not sure? Well, let's remember how Jesus dealt with the woman caught in adultery. Remember this story from John chapter 8? Yeah, there's a woman, she's caught in the act of adultery. And the scribes and the Pharisees and the teachers of the Lord, they they bring her and they're going to stone her to death because that was the punishment back then. They're going to stone this woman to death. And they ask Jesus, they're trying to trap him. Well, what do you think we should do? And Jesus says in, in his brilliant way that only Jesus can say, he says, which one of you is without sin? Let them be the first to cast, to throw the stone. And what happens? The conviction of the Holy Spirit comes on, on those people. And one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away. Because they know none of them are without sin. And yet, there was one person there, wasn't there, who would have been entitled to throw that stone. Who would have been justified to throw that stone. Did he throw the stone? No. What does he do? What does he say? Jesus says, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? The woman replies, no, Lord. And then Jesus says, then neither do I. That's the Lord of Lords. She's just been caught in adultery. There's there's no question she did it. And Jesus is saying, I do not condemn you. But let us not forget what he says right after that. He says, I do not condemn you. But then he says, go and sin no more. That's a very important addition there. Jesus qualifies his forgiveness and non-condemnation with a challenge, with a command. Go and sin no more. So saying you're sorry and repenting, that's only the beginning. It's a great start and it's where we have to start, but it is only the beginning. Now Jesus challenges us to live a new and changed life. And that is reflected in how we think and in how we act. So as we start to wrap up here, I I just want to, in conclusion, cement a few things that we, we, we've been talking about here today. Firstly, marriage is something that God has ordained from the beginning of creation. And adultery is sinful because it desecrates and breaks the covenant of marriage. And it's ultimately, it's based on selfish, lustful desires. But Jesus makes clear that adultery is not just a physical act of marital infidelity, but it's also a matter of the heart and what's going on inside us, our inner purity. And I just want to end with this. As I was thinking through 
this whole issue of adultery. I thought you can basically boil it down to three three types of people regarding adultery. So firstly, there, there are those who have been adulterous or have been the recipient of adultery. Secondly, there are those who are contemplating adultery. And then thirdly, there are those who are having an affair right now as we speak. Isn't it funny that we, we even try to downplay the seriousness by calling it an affair? I'm having an, an affair. We don't hear many people say, I'm in the midst of adultery right now. We don't hear that, do we? We soften it with our words. But those are really the three points, and I just want to speak quickly to those. that um, If you have been in adultery, if you've been the one who's done it, if you've repented of it and laid it before the Lord, there is now no condemnation for you. But that repentance must come with a changed life and actions. But you don't need to walk in self-condemnation if your repentance is genuine. For those who are contemplating it, run. Run while you still can. Turn your thoughts away from that person and instead turn your thoughts to God and his word. It sounds so simple, but it works. Train your thoughts to move away from those places that they shouldn't be dwelling on. Pray for strength. Listen to what, what the, uh, the, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to all people. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. When you are tempted, he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. You got it in writing right there, folks. The Lord will provide you a way out when you're tempted. The question is, do you accept it? Do you take the way out or do you decide, nope, you know, I'm going to go this way anyway because it's all about me. And thirdly, if you're in the middle of an affair right now, end it. You need to end it. You need to confess. You need to come clean and repent. Stop living in the lies and the deceit. You know, the, the, Lord, the Lord is quick to forgive when we are contrite and genuinely sorry for what we have done. He really is. But it has to be a heart motive that brings us there. Let's pray. Father, you know the the hearts of each and every one of us, Lord, and you know all the thoughts that we think, all the good things we think, and all the the bad things that we think, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, that um, through you, Jesus, we are not condemned, that you chose not to throw that stone at us, but instead you took nails in the cross for us. Help us to realize that today, Lord, as as I'm sure there are multiple people sitting here this morning that have their own experience with um, adultery or uh, issues within marriage, Lord. And I just pray that your love would come over them, that you remind them of how much you love and care for them. 
And I pray healing over people's lives that have um, suffered hurt and rejection, who are walking through shame or self-condemnation or guilt. I pray, Lord, that there is repentance and that there is forgiveness and that you would help us all, Lord, to be more pure in our lives, both outwardly and inwardly. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.